Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development. Innovate features dialogue with social entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leading scholars engaged in transformative thinking, action, and creative collaboration. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. The program is underwritten by Arch Street Press, publisher for the creative, collaborative community. Find out more on the web at archstreetpress.org. Today, our guest is Rupert Schofield, co-founder, president, and CEO of the Foundation for International Community Assistance, known as Finca, with a mission to provide financial services to the world's lowest-income entrepreneurs so they can create jobs, build assets, and improve their standard of living. Rupert is a graduate of Brown University and also holds a master's in agricultural economics from the University of Wisconsin. He's also the author of the Social Entrepreneur's Handbook, How to Start, Build, and Run a Business that Improves the World. Finca is widely regarded as one of the pioneers of international microfinance and village banking. Its achievements and innovative structure have been widely recognized around the world. Those shining a light on Finca's work include the Wall Street Journal, Salon, Entertainment Weekly, The Financial Times, The New York Times, USA Today, Bloomberg, NBC, and the list truly goes on and on. I'd like to begin by giving listeners a sense of Finca's leadership in the microfinance field and the truly enormous scale of its operations. Could you talk a little bit about that, starting with, for example, the number of clients that you've reached and the, your global uh, scope, the global scope of the work? Sure. Thank you, David. And thank you especially for this uh, wonderful opportunity. Uh, I've uh, also looked into your bio and uh, really congratulations. You're, you're a wonderful pioneer in the social sphere and uh, I think the nation and the, uh, and the world is lucky to have you. Um, also a shout out to Ashoka, which is also a terrific organization. Um, at Finca, we actually uh, passed a really important milestone just very recently we reached uh, our millionth borrower client uh, we are now uh, a network working in 23 countries of Latin America Africa what we call uh, Eurasia which runs from Eastern Europe to Central Asia and most recently uh, we've entered Pakistan um, <clears throat> we also uh, are entering uh, Nigeria um, we have at this point over 10,000 employees and our loan portfolio is over $700 million. Um, but I guess, you know, these, these numbers, while important, uh, don't speak to our real impact, which I think are the changes that take place in the lives of our clients over time. Uh, I was recently in Uganda to celebrate our 20th anniversary there and I went to visit one of our uh, first village banks which I actually organized 20 years ago. Uh, I, uh, I had gone over there with a small stake of $100,000 that we raised from a, a local foundation in Minnesota and uh, in two weeks I, I chartered the foundation Finca Uganda, I hired a director, I trained a credit officer and we dispersed loans to four uh, groups of women. Uh, one of was in this little town of Kimantu and I, I, I went back there really without any advanced warning or not much, just a couple of days and what I found was truly uh, inspiring. One of the women I talked to said, Mr. Schofield, the $50 loan you gave me 20 years ago has transformed my life. And it emerged what she meant by that. She'd taken that $50 and she'd bought a small piece of land. She'd put a house on it. She'd started a clothing business with it. And today, 20 years later, she had five acres of sugar cane, which was generating a few thousand dollars a month in additional income. And her business had expanded to five other towns, which she reached uh, with a motorcycle that she'd bought. So, wow. uh, yeah, this, this is the kind of 
transformation, you know, that really I think tells the true story of of Finca's impact. Uh, so, you know, that that's what's really going on behind the numbers. So you've been in this field now for over 40 years. And as they say, you were there at the creation of Finca. And I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about social entrepreneurship and social venturing. And I wonder if you could talk for a minute about the very early days. I mean, microfinance is really... Uh, I think a, a well understood concept, at least among social entrepreneurs right now. But there was a time in which it was very, very novel. And so, if you could take us back to that sort of moment where someone says village banking, and and people are like, "Well, what is village banking?" <laughs> you know, um, it would be really interesting, I think, to get that perspective. Yes. Uh, well, I love actually to relive those early days, especially. You know, the older I get, I love to think and recall that young man of 22 years old who used to look a lot better than I do now and, uh, you know, was able to walk 50 kilometers in a day up and up through the Guatemalan countryside. But uh, my story is really interesting, you know, and and the uh, these terms we use today, microfinance, social enterprise, they didn't exist in 1971 when I began my journey. And uh, I have to confess, I did not really intend uh, to be a social entrepreneur or work in microfinance. I didn't really expect to ever leave the country. Uh, but uh, I, one of my primary influencers was none other than President Richard Nixon. And Nixon helped me on my way by drafting me into the armed services uh, at the height of the Vietnam War. Now, um, I actually, uh, the war at that uh, point in time was uh, where John, as John Kerry put it, no one wanted to be the last man to die for a mistake. And I certainly didn't want to, you know, have that fate in store for me. So I looked around for other options. Uh, some of my classmates were running away to Canada, you know, living in exile. A few even went to uh, went to jail as conscientious objectors. Um, but I discovered there was this thing called the Peace Corps, and uh, you could get a two-year deferment from the draft, uh, after which you had to serve. Well, I thought, okay, anything can happen in two years, so let's check it out. So, you know, I interviewed with them, and they said, okay. Rupert, yeah, you, you, we think you'll do. Uh, where would you like to serve? And I said, I thought a moment, uh, how about Jamaica? <laughs> and uh, they said, no, no, we're, we're going to send you to Guatemala, and you're going to work as an extension agent to an agricultural cooperative working with small peasant farmers. And I looked at him and said, you do realize I was born in New York City, right? And they said, yeah, don't worry about that. You know, we'll teach you how to farm and all that. <laughs> so um, off I went and, uh, you know, I went up to this idyllic little town in the highlands of Guatemala with, you know, surrounded by lush tropical vegetation and crops and with views of active volcanoes uh, and, you know, then I had to figure out, okay, how can I make myself useful? So I started, you know, with my two months of Peace Corps training and growing corn and beans. I headed out into the countryside, and as I looked at the crops, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, were were not doing too well, I thought, you know, I'm gonna if I if I work with these poor people uh, and impart my scant knowledge, I'm gonna be more of a threat to their crops than. Uh, help. Um, so anyway, I talked to my, you know, counterparts in the co-op, and they said, "Well, what we're going to do is we are going to lend people fifty dollars worth of fertilizer, and that's going to increase their yield." So I checked this out with the farmers, and they thought it was a great idea. So uh, that's what we did, and I had eight hundred of these small farmers in in my care, uh, and I didn't know anything about agriculture, but I knew probably less about banking, despite the fact that my father was a banker, and, and what I learned from that experience was I never wanted to put on that gray <laughs> suit and go into Wall Street every day. Um, but I said, okay, let's try it. And so I, I took my list of 800 
clients, uh, members of the co-op, and I went around town saying, you know, okay, has anybody ever lent money to these people? And does anybody know, you know, who's a, who's a good, uh, you know, borrower or, or not? And everybody pointed to this one name, Apolinario Otz. They said, no, no, don't lend him money. You know, he's, <laughs> he owes money to everybody in town. So I took this down to my boss at the co-op. And uh, I said, they're all good except uh, this guy, Apolinario. And uh, he said, okay. But then to my amazement, when the loans were dispersed, uh, we made a loan to Apolinario along with all the others. Now, uh, of the 800, 799 of the farmers paid us back in full. And uh, there was old Apolinario, of course, who defaulted. And I'm still, <laughs> I'm still looking for him, actually. Uh, so if you run into him, you know, and you're on Facebook or something, please, please a, let me know. A great story about community, the wisdom of the community. <laughs> exactly, the local knowledge. Um, so anyway, that that made a huge impression upon me. You know, that the other thing, the bigger impression though, was the impact of that small amount of money. And that small amount of fertilizer uh, on the on the crops and the farmers' well-being. I mean, their crops doubled and tripled. They easily paid off the loans. They had a marketable surplus as well. The family ate better. Uh, really, the members of the co-op did uh, in much better than their neighbors who didn't participate. So that you know that made a huge impression on me. But the final thing was when two years. Uh, was up, and uh, actually, and during the two years, just as I had hoped, uh, Nixon, my friend, ended the draft, so I was a free man again. Um, so it came time to say goodbye, and I went around, you know, to the different villages, and, and I was amazed by the people's reaction. You know, they begged me not to leave, you know, no salgas, don Ruperto, por favor, you know, they would, some of them would grab my hands as if to physically restrain me you know and and it just it, it hit me then wow you know for the first time in my life i made a difference in someone else's and i you know i did go back to the states and i toiled at different jobs uh but i never could muster the same passion that i felt for that you know 150 dollar a month gig i did as a peace corps volunteer you know living on the level of the people uh, <clears throat> living in a shack you know for twenty dollars a month rent and you know living literally on a dollar a day for food uh, it you know and so i uh you know through a combination of of other uh you know strokes of luck or fortune whatever you want to call it i i ended up you know back on the path a few years later i think one of the things that's really interesting about the work that you do, and, and I think it's something that's shared throughout the microfinance field. In many, many cases, when we're doing this kind of work, we think of it as just pure philanthropy. Uh, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to give something to somebody, and they're going to be better for it. But of course, your work shows a slightly different uh, model, which is even embedded in the story you told, where we're not going to give these farmers fertilizer, we're going to lend it to them, and then they're going to pay back. And of course, from that sort of very simple shift in the model, a lot of things come out of that. And it's really the idea of, uh, you know, capitalism, if we could say it that way. So I wanted to I want to explore that with you because I think it's fascinating to talk to someone like you who's there in the very early days. And I wonder if, if you can share with us, was there a moment at which someone said, wow, you know, we're really on to something here because it can be sustainable in a way that's different because it can be built more like a business than a government program or a philanthropy. Um, could you talk about that? Yeah, I'm, I'd be happy to. You know, it, with our co-op, uh, and this is a pretty remarkable thing, you know, you talk about uh, sustainability, that cooperative is still there in Guatemala 40 years later, uh, providing services to small farmers. And uh, yeah, we, you know, we charged interest, not at all exorbitant interest, 12% uh, a year. And, uh, you know, the people were easily able to pay that back. And, um, you know, and that created a revenue stream. Then we also uh, got into processing and marketing wheat. 
uh, in some of the other, not in my region, but other regions. But altogether, uh, you know, we put together an income stream that uh, allowed us to work with the poorest people in the country, if not on earth, in a sustainable way. Now, when we started to organize Finca, you know, we, we noticed the same thing. I mean, initially we started it donations you know we went john hatch and i went around uh, that's the co-founder went around to rotary clubs and church groups and so forth and you know we would pass the hat and raise a few thousand bucks and we weren't really thinking about building an organization at that time we we're just testing you know a, a model and it worked brilliantly you know we we'd create village banks all over latin america and uh, they would repay us just like my small farmers in Guatemala and they would benefit from it you know they, they were easily getting returns that were sufficient you know to pay back the capital and the interest but over time uh, as the program grew uh, I began to notice holy smokes you know uh, we're covering now half of our costs with interest uh, from the loan portfolio and then it was 75 and then 80 and at this point, uh, we cover all of our costs, you know, a, a global organization uh, filled with, you know, refugees from the banking sector, some of whom are not cheap, uh, 10,000 employees, you know, all the, all these uh, regional offices, transportation costs and everything. It's all covered by the income from that loan portfolio. So uh, in that regard, uh, we've created, a, you know, a sustainable operation and you know if we don't screw it up <laughs> uh it should be around for a long long time and you know be basically a global fund that is helping more and more of the poorest entrepreneurs in more and more countries um i want to shift in in just a couple of minutes to talk about your book but um i wanted to ask you two other follow-up questions about finca so one is i think this is very interesting that you guys have been really focused also on pioneering some some innovative products in the microfinance area and one i'd like you to talk about because i think it's not something that people think about a lot and it would be interesting for listeners to hear about this is the concept of microinsurance and the idea that you know could you talk a little bit about that that's an innovation and if you could sort of sh shed a light on what is the meaning of that for someone who is a low income entrepreneur how does it benefit them right well um Yes, I'd love to talk about that. And and basically, uh, what we began to understand over time, and I think lots of social entrepreneurs that work with the poor recognize this early, uh, poor people suffer from so many, uh, you know, uh, external shocks to their to their families, you know, economic shocks, health shocks. Uh, they live in, you know, in poor communities, you have a myriad problems of crime, you know, poor services, uh, poor health from contaminated water and so forth. And so even if you're, you know, successfully providing capital to these entrepreneurs so they can, you know, start and build a business, they can get completely wiped out uh, through some bad luck you know, uh, either a disease in the family or, a, you know, a natural calamity like an earthquake, like the Haitian earthquake or, uh, you know, a hurricane in Central America. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm one of those who actually believes that global warming is causing these things. And so they're only going to get worse. So how, how do people protect themselves from that? Well, you know, that's where insurance comes in. I mean, and, and that product literally can protect people and put them back on their feet you know we have we started out actually in you can believe it in uganda at the height of the aids epidemic and we partnered with aig which uh, back then was you know a strong company which had not suffered yet from the you know the huge financial meltdown and their you know, synthetic credit swaps and other derivatives and so forth. Uh, they were just doing straight up insurance and, and we partnered with them and we covered 
uh, people who even had AIDS, you know, and back then you didn't have the retrovirals, but, you know, just through managing the risk as insurance companies are able to do and, you know, predict uh, fatality rates and so forth, we designed a product that, uh, you know, protected people and their families. If, if the borrower died of whatever cause, then the loan was paid off. And over time, we began to add a death benefit and even cover other members of the family. And then uh, in Ecuador, we, we experimented with a health insurance product, which was basically accident protection. And we worked, partnered with a, a network of clinics around the country. So uh, this, this I think, is something that is, you know, as or equally important as access to credit uh, for, uh, you know, the people that we work with. So that, that's a, a, also a fascinating story because I think it illustrates how you can leverage one innovation to bring another. And that's really what you've done because you've built this layer of insurance, if I understand it right, on top of some of the other financial products that you offer to uh, low-income entrepreneurs. Exactly. And, and another important pillar that we're really just getting started on is savings. You know, you don't, you don't want people to become dependent on credit. And the idea is for them to build their own wealth and their own working capital. So we are undertaking a major transformation of our network right now where we're trying to get banking licenses for all our subsidiaries so they can intermediate savings. And we're about a third of the way done with, uh, with that transformation. Fantastic. I, I would like to turn now to talk about your book, The Social Entrepreneur's Handbook, How to Start, Build, and Run a Business that Improves the World. So um, I've been reading your book, uh, Rupert, and I have to say I'm really enjoying it. Um, a few things have, that come to mind. One is I love the way that you have wrapped stories around what is very solid advice. The stories are very engaging. In some cases, they're humorous um, and in some cases, very compelling. Another thing that I love about your book is that it seems to me to be very unflinchingly honest, um, and it's cl clearly a book by someone who has, you know, been there and is giving you the perspective from the field. You know, so many of these books are written by people who are academics or observers, but your book is like, it's like a book about football written from the perspective of the quarterback. And uh, it's just wonderful to have that kind of honest perspective. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your approach in the book and whether, you know, I've you think I've characterized it correctly, whether you were attempting to depart from some of the other kind of uh, stuff that's out there um, in this in this genre. Well, thank you, David. I, I think that is a very accurate uh, description of what uh, what I was going for, as we say. Um, and the the genesis of it was, you know, I, I have to make a confession here. I uh, I, I didn't want to be, a, you know, out of the gate a social entrepreneur. What I wanted to do was be a novelist. You know, my my heroes were Fitzgerald and Hemingway and so forth. And I I I loved writing. Uh, since I was eight years old, and I had a wonderful mentor, a journalist teacher in the fifth grade who lit the fire in me. Uh, but I wasn't, uh, sadly, I was not commercially successful at it. Um, but, you know, I kept trying and writing, and, you know, I guess I just got better and better the more rejections I got, the madder <laughs> I got, <laughs> the more determined I got. And uh, I nearly published a novel. Uh, uh, back in the mid 80s about my experience in in El Salvador during the Civil War and I actually did publish it in in uh, El Salvador in Spanish for what it's worth how about that uh, yeah no I mean um, but uh, so you know I always wanted to to break in uh, you know with a with a published book and so uh, and then I started to think and think, you know, gee, I must have learned something of value after all these years, uh, you know. So I started, uh, you know, just getting kind of little sound bites popping into my head, like, you know, how to 
manage the uh, the high producing psychotic, you know, and when beans bite back, how to find the right CFO, uh, and uh, and then I thought, okay, you know what? I've I've written you know a number of novels and they've all crashed and burned, uh, even when I had an agent, and I thought. Let me let me research what you do when you're going to write nonfiction, and and I I learned that you don't write the book and then start shopping it. You write a proposal, and then you get some publisher to buy into your idea, and okay, then you write it. So, and then of course I, I knew I had to get an agent, so I called an agent. Uh, sorry, a, a friend of mine who published a book, and uh, he referred me to his agent. And to my amazement, you know, the the agent said, "Yep." Uh, this is a very timely book. You're the perfect person to write it. Uh, let's talk. So uh, then over the next year, uh, we struggled to put together a proposal. Uh, she kept sending my drafts back to me saying, Rupert, you know, you, you're trying to write a memoir here and you're not Kim Kardashian. Nobody <laughs> gives a damn about your personal life, you know. And uh, so finally... She said, uh, finally, I, I kind of took it on board and I restructured it as a business book. Uh, but I, I slipped in these things, which I call uh, swag boxes, where I tell little vignettes of my stories, you know. And uh, that seemed to work uh, for my agent. So we shopped. We finally, you know, finished the proposal. And in one week of shopping, we got three. Uh, offers and we just went with McGraw Hill. But you know, after years and years of struggling in the vineyard, I, I was just blown away with how you know quickly things began to move uh, with this book. And then, then of course, I had to write it. So I, for nine over the next nine months, I got up every morning at 6 a.m. and I uh, built myself a carafe of French press coffee, you know, high <laughs> octane. Because keep in mind, you know, I was I was doing a full time. You're day still job. working, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, I loved the experience. It was just one. It was almost as good as fiction. You know, I mean, there is really a lot of creativity in the process. And one of the neatest things about it was I learned so much. You know, as I, I as I began to relive these moments of you know euphoria and terror. You know, when things went wrong and and you know we risked losing the whole operation due to some screw up. Uh, I began to glean out you know, the real hidden lessons of those experiences. So I, I think I actually became a better manager as a result of, of writing this book. I want to get into a little bit of that. And before we do that, though, I'd like to, because I know a lot of a lot of our listeners are early stage social entrepreneurs and people that are thinking about a venture. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the having an impossible dream and, and something that really stirs a deep passion. Um, and you tell a story uh, in your in your book that I sort of think might have been part of that for you. Um, I wonder if you could both tell that story and then and then comment on that, whether you also think that is something that social entrepreneurs share, which is a moment in which they sort of realize uh, through a struggle their ability to have some impact. The story that I'm thinking about is the delivery of fertilizer through the mud to <laughs> Guatemalan farmers. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> right. Well, that, uh, yeah, that really takes me back. So I, I had only been uh, in the country, you know, a couple of months, but, you know, the rainy season was starting. And so, you know, we, we had basically promised to these 800 farmers that I had, you know, personally met in my, in my village that we were going to deliver, you know, this fertilizer to them. And, uh, you know, as time went by, I began to grow apprehensive because I heard from the management of the co-op uh, that, gee, you know, we ordered this fertilizer from New Orleans and somebody screwed the order up and it's not going to arrive in time, you know, for the planting. So, uh, you know, I, I really got concerned and, uh, you know, and I went down to the, talk to the manager, you know, and he said, yeah, uh, sorry, Don Ruperto, but uh, you're going to have to go back and tell all those farmers that we we screwed up and we can't 
you know, make good on our promise this year. But, you know, just tell them we'll we'll get it to them next year, you know. And I looked at him and I said, so so what am I supposed to do this for the rest of this year, <laughs> you know, live in that town when <laughs> everybody, you know, is going to think I was a liar and just another <laughs> fraud like the local politicians, you know, promising stuff and then not delivering? I said, no. I said, so when when are you getting the fertilizer here? He said, well, it'll be here next week, you know, but nobody's, you know, we've talked to the truckers and nobody's willing to take it up to your town because they got to drive over these mud roads and the trucks will get stuck and all this. So I said, nobody, huh? All right. So I went around the town and I basically added 10 cents to the what they call the flete or the fare that we would have to pay to have this stuff delivered. And I found some crazy guy uh, who said, yeah, I'll take it for that. And so, you know, I went with this guy for the next couple of weeks over these mud roads, you know, the truck, yeah, it certainly got stuck. You know, I would get behind it and push and get machine gunned by the drive wheel, you know. So we we would arrive, you know, we arrived at, I'll never forget that first uh, little hamlet, you know, it was like 50 kilometers even from my town, and we're driving down this winding dirt road, which had been turned, you know, to soap, you know, it was, <laughs> it was all this clay, slippery as hell, we're skidding down, you know, and we see all the farmers gathered at the bottom, you know, of, of this mountain, and they're all, they're, they're like, you know, peasants in a medieval movie, you know, gathered around their little chapel, and, uh, and, you know, we blast the horn, you know, and they start cheering, you know, and uh, we get down there and, you know, just seeing the jubilation on their faces, you know, just filled me with this incredible sense of satisfaction. Like we did it, you know, yeah. we came through and the, and these people now knew, you know, that they were going to have a good crop and they were going to eat well and, you know, and they were going to be able to clothe uh, and feed their families. It was at, it was just and and equally imp impressive were the expressions of disbelief on the neighbors who had been saying, "Ah, you fools! You, you shouldn't have believed that gringo." You know, they were just sitting there dumbstruck. You know, like shit. He really came through. You know, that's that's such a great story. An aspiring novelist understands the power of metaphor, and there's so much rich metaphor in that, uh, particularly the fact that it's, you know, fertilizer being driven through the mud, and yet, and yet it is what makes the difference. And I love, the thing I also love about that story, which rings so true to me in my work, is that, you know, there's this always this point where the rubber meets the road, and somebody has to step up and get something accomplished in the face of seeming impossibilities. And you know that your business is built out of just stringing together moments like that where you rise up and meet whatever the challenge is so very rich uh, rich story well you know there's i think david and you probably share this trait i think social entrepreneurs are among the most stubborn people on earth <laughs> right. i mean you know it is so hard to get us to you know quit and give up you know and and really you know i tell my uh, the you know our investors you know because we now you know, we don't only j just have donors, but we have creditors and even equity investors in our operation. And, uh, you know, I tell them, look, if we gave up every time a program ran into trouble, we would, I think we would have one program. The only country of our 23 that I can think of that hasn't, you know, had some kind of reverses at some point is Kyrgyzstan. But all the others, if, if we, uh, you know, if we'd closed them when we gave up, we'd have nothing now. So, you know, you, you just have to, you know, show, soldier through. Keep on going. Yes. The, another uh, thing that I love about the book is really how you uh, I don't want to say simplify, but you make accessible some of the core ideas about, you know, how an organization is put together and what makes it work. And um, I wonder if you could comment briefly on these characters that you talk about, the visionary, the carpenter and the bean. I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, <laughs> again, metaphor. And um, if you could just share a little bit of that, I think it would intrigue people. 
Yeah, well, there's. I think that's definitely something, you know, that makes Finca unique. And again, you know, was this luck? Was it fate? You know, who knows? Uh, I know it wasn't intelligent design. I can promise you that, not mine. <laughs> but we we somehow uh, got the right people uh, at the very beginning working together. And by that, I mean, you know, my partner in the consulting firm, uh, John Hatch. Uh, was the visionary, you know, he was the one who said, uh, you know, after we'd been doing consulting for a number of years, he said, you know, I'm so sick of this, you know, working for other clients and sometimes they listen to us and sometimes they don't. Uh, I want to go, you know, do development uh, ourselves. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And, and he began to describe this credit scheme. And I said, wow, you know, that's exactly what we did when I was in the Peace Corps in Guatemala. And I said, yeah, let's do it, you know. And uh, I said, so how, how exactly are we going to deliver this? And he said, well, well, we'll start a foundation and we'll raise a few million bucks. I said, how long is that going to take? And he said, oh, six months tops you know so of course six years later <laughs> we, we finally you know started to raise some real money and you know be able to you know build out a, a program and create an infrastructure but you know john john was a total dreamer you know i mean he was he had incredible ideas but he had no idea how to build an organization, you know, a delivery system. And that's where his older, uh, I won't say older, smarter brother, but older, more corporate brother came in. His brother was kind of his polar opposite. He was a, a, a guy who had, you know, gone to business school at Dartmouth, got an MBA, went into the cereal business at General Mills, you know, fought his way up the corporate ladder, got booted out in a power struggle, ran a Fortune 500 uh, food company, got forced out in an LBO by some investors, wow. uh, and just had learned every possible lesson you could, you know, about working in a big organization, you know, g governance, audit, all that stuff. He knew, and so we, we called him, or I called him in the book, the carpenter, you know, the wow. guy who built the house. Right. And then Mr. Bean was an interesting character. Uh, Mr. Bean was a Arthur Anderson auditor who we brought in early, and he was actually my predecessor as executive director. He didn't know anything bean he didn't know beans if you will about right. development uh, didn't speak any languages but you know he knew how to build financial controls and that stuff and and you know this was not a happy uh, partnership in the beginning. I mean, the visionary and Mr. Bean just warred constantly. I mean, they had totally different approaches. John's approach was trust everybody. You know, everybody's good at heart. You know, we don't we don't need all these auditors and checks and balances. And of course, we did end up having a catastrophic fraud. Uh, in this country, uh, El Salvador, that John ran and built up to one of the biggest microfinance uh, companies in in Central America at the time, uh, but we got nailed with a uh, you know our, some of our employees ripped off a million dollars and it nearly killed Finca in the cradle. It was the worst. Wow. It was actually the first year I was executive director, and I, I, it was just a nightmare of. Uh, you know, auditors and, you know, threatened uh, threats from donors and so forth. But, you know, we, we somehow got through it. And, and my, my I think I called myself the monkey, you know, as in right. the monkey in the middle, because yeah. I was sort of, I understood the importance of the carpenter and Mr. Bean and the visionary, you know, yeah. They were all essential, you know, every one of them. And uh, so we had to, the one, the thing that held us together, the glue that held us together was that, you know, we brought, John and I brought Mr. Bean and the carpenter down to see a program. And when they saw these poor women smiling and bragging about their businesses and, you know, saw the well-fed babies, you know, the impact of of our work, they were sold. You know, th these guys are, re you know, Republicans down to the down to the shoes, you know, and, uh, you know, but when they saw this, 
it was sort of the moment like, okay, this is self-sufficiency. As, as you said, David, this is, you know, this is capitalism writ right. small, you know, right. and it's working, you know, and, uh, th you know, this is, and so that, that's what kept us together. And eventually, you know, there grew this, you know, genuine, and I, I hate, you know, we're not supposed to say this among men, right? But this genuine affection for each other sure. and, and, and admiration that's, uh, you know, held us together for almost 30 years now. Well, I thought, again, such a powerful metaphor and one that I think, I think one of the great things about what you've written there is that that tension does apply in all organizations of all scales you know, the person who has a vision, the person who has to implement it, and then the person who has to sort of report about it and make sure that the, there's structural integrity in the organization and, and to balance all those things, such a core function of leadership. And, and, um, and I also think that you have some wonderful, again, simple but powerful ideas about leadership in the book. So I really want to encourage um, people to go and get it because I do think that there is a dearth of material so much material that's out there is really pitched at what I'm going to call either an academic level or at an observational level. It's people who aren't in the work writing about the work from the from the perspective of watching it, and they just don't have the same insights as someone who's in it. And I think your book really reflects the, the in-it-ness of, of, of doing this work. Well, thanks, David. And I, I would yeah. just say, you know, and this is, this, I guess, truly is blowing my own horn but i honestly think maybe one thing that makes the book work on that level is that i am at heart a novelist and a right. novelist has to be brutally honest you yes. know a novelist cannot hold back you know otherwise it simply doesn't work you know it's not there yeah so anyway but thanks thanks for i think you really uh you know, you've really hit upon what I was trying to accomplish, and it's, it's just delightful, you know, to hear when someone uh, someone gets it. So, um, I wanted to ask you this sort of philosophical question before we uh, we we have just about maybe ten more minutes or maybe even less, but um, I wanted to ask you this philosophical question because we're at a moment in our culture where we hear a lot today about the shortcomings of capitalism. You see Occupy Wall Street, you see a lot of people complaining in this country about um, the failures of capitalism, the shortcomings, and, and, and a real focus on government as regulator and con how to uh, constrain or contain some of these things. And yet, I think the lens of microfinance shows us another face of capitalism and the, imbil the ability to sort of really, um, we want to call it enlightened capitalism, perhaps how it can improve people's lives, lift people out of poverty. You, I think, have a unique perspective having seen this work in so many places around the world uh, at the ground level, not just in theory. And I wonder if you could tell me your thoughts about that, the role of uh, private enterprise, if you will, in lifting people out of poverty around the world. What do you think about that? Well, I, yeah, that is an excellent question, David. And 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 let me let me actually get out there uh, mm -hmm. that microfinance is not you know without its detractors and without its problems. And there have been people who I would say have abused. Uh, microfinance and used it as a tool just to make money. I mean, they've basically set up subprime lending operations and they've over-indebted people and they charge them outrageous interest. And, and a lot of them got into this because they, they saw what we were doing. Wow, you know, they're lending to poor people and they're getting their money back. We need to get a piece of this action, you know. And I feel the same way about capitalism. You know, capitalism, if it's done responsibly and if it's done with people in mind, both on the client customer side and the employee side uh, and and of course you know giving the shareholders a fair return not swindling them uh, it can be the most powerful or one of the most powerful forces on earth uh, but at the same time if it's abused you know as happened in the financial sector uh, just before the meltdown and, and let's be honest you know this is about the third time that we have a meltdown right um you know we had this snl crisis and you know uh and now we had this thing that was crashed basically by the subprime 
lenders and and you know and to some extent the the trading desks of these big financial institutions uh, that didn't know their risk or didn't manage their risk or put you know big profits ahead of uh, you know competent risk management and so uh, and you know what the answer is to me David I think it's social enterprise you know so a social enterprise can be plenty profitable you know it can achieve scale uh, it can take care of its employees it can give the consumers uh, a fair deal and I see more and more you know listening to the rhetoric that's out there now you know fair trade and you know in green this and green that it's happening you know yeah. I really think it's moving in exactly the right direction and I'm I think social enterprise or responsible capitalism if you want to call it that is really taking hold globally and uh, you know, I think I think at the end of the day, you know, mankind is going to do the right thing. But we are in a race. You know, we are in a race uh, with the environment. We're in a race uh, with you know terrorism and poverty. Uh, you know, of course, poverty gives rise to almost all the ills. You know, including terrorism. Uh, but you know, we we I think you know responsible capitalism, social enterprise has the potential to revolutionize every single sector of the economy and change the paradigm and, uh, you know, and, and result in a more just, uh, equitable world. So there's, there are things to be worried about, but there's a lot to feel optimistic about, hopeful about, and, uh, and we see that going, going on all over the world right now and especially through your work. So really terrific. Um, uh, we're really coming to the end of our time now, Rupert, and I wanted to ask you, I always, in these interviews, always ask for some advice for social entrepreneurs and uh, to uh, some departing words of wisdom. And I, um, I wanted to call attention to something that I heard you say and ask you to comment on it and maybe elaborate. But this was, uh, it's up on the internet if people want to look at it. I found it very inspiring. You had um, given some remarks receiving an honorary Doctor of Laws degree at uh, Roehampton University in London. And you spoke, as you mentioned here, about the Vietnam War and how that had led to your involvement in the Peace Corps. But this is what you said. You said, what had appeared to be a disaster was a blessing in disguise. Your life may be a long and winding road that doesn't always lead to the door you were expecting. When fate opens the door to you, leave room for fate to work its magic. You may find it leads to a life of excitement, service, and satisfaction beyond your wildest dreams. I just uh, found that to be a very striking and important idea that uh, you can't always plan for everything. You have to be open to what the universe has for you. So tell us uh, maybe that and whatever other thoughts you might have for people who are beginning their journey. Yeah, I think I, I love I love that. Uh, you know, to be honest, I love that, uh, you know, statement because it really does describe my path. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, if you discover, and, and I hope everyone does, I, if you discover, you know, your passion, that thing you care so much about, you know, and maybe it's some injustice in the world that really makes you angry and makes you want to do something about it, uh, you know, it doesn't have, or it could be some huge global problem like global warming, uh, you know, or, uh, or some kind of, you know, terrible disease. Uh, you know, when you find that, you know, don't let go of it, you know, because that fire is going to keep you going when the adversity comes, as it surely will, you know. I mean, especially in the early days when you're trying to promote your idea, you know, you're just going to run into skeptic after skeptic, you know, naysayer, this will never work, this has been tried, you know, you're wasting your time, you know, just uh, just hearken back to why you're doing what you're doing, you know, yeah. and uh, and I, you know, and this is where the mystical part comes in. I mean, at, at you know, during most of Finca's journey, uh, because I think we've kept to the mission and we've kept to our values, 
we've had wonderful things happen, you know, for us. People who we never thought would help us have helped us. And, uh, you know, we've, we've, most of all, I think we've been able to draw the right kinds of people, you know, people who may have worked just, you know, to make money their entire lives. And then towards the end of their career, they say, you know what, I can help you, Finca, or I can help you, Rupert. And I've got all these skills that I've acquired, and I want to put them to work in your company because I, I, I love what you're doing and I want to be a part of it, you know. And so, uh, you know, I think that's uh, that's the best advice I could give. And, and other than that, you know, when you discover your passion, uh, you know, and if it has anything to do with, you know, people who are getting a raw deal on this planet, uh, go walk a mile in their shoes, you know, get to get to understand them, speak their language, learn how to communicate with them because they'll be your guide. You know, they'll be your touch tone. Just keep going back to them whenever you're in doubt, you know, say, Hey, are, are we doing it right? You know, are we helping you? And, yeah. uh, you know, that's what you can count on. So leave room, uh, remember your passion and leave room for fate to work its magic. The, um, the best way uh, to reach you and support Finca's work would be, of course, to go to your website, finca.org, F-I-N-C-A.org. And also, I note that you have a blog, uh, rupertschofield.com. Are there any other ways that we should be directing people to find you? Well, of course, I'm, you know, I'm trying to build a Twitter base. I'm trying to catch up with Kim Kardashian. <laughs> She's got like 17 million followers and I'm only up a little over 500. So uh, if any of your listeners want to follow me on Twitter, I'd love to get to know them and what they're doing. You know, it's all about networking. You know, some people are, especially in the Ashoka network, are doing some amazing work that I'm not even aware of. I'm aware of a little of it. But, you know, we need to work together, you know, to have to, you know, build that synergy and, and you know, greatly magnify our impact. That's great. And we'll also put up a link to your book, The Social Entrepreneur's Handbook, which is available on Amazon.com and I'm sure on other sites. So, Rupert, I just wanted to thank you so much for your extraordinary work and your leadership that is truly changing lives throughout the world. It's been uh, an enormous pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, same here, David. Really, thanks so much for this wonderful opportunity and all the best to you. On behalf of our producers and sponsors, Arch Street Press, Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work, visit us at archstreetpress.org.